Welcome everyone. I'm stoked you could be with us for today's Beach Talk. I love to help us understand every word of God that's in the word of God. My objective is always the same. It's uh, disciples making disciples who plant churches that plant churches so that Jesus can be a grassroots person and idea all over the world. Now in 2020, we had uh, four churches in two countries and in 2021, we are prayerfully hoping that we will have <laughs> eight churches in four countries. I'd like you to believe with us in prayer that God will help us to accomplish these things. So we have four trips this year, uh, two trips uh, to El Salvador in June, and then we have a trip to Indonesia in July, and then we have a trip in Bangladesh this December. We'd love for you to come and help us install ocean-based water systems to help people drink the ocean and to help us start three new churches in other countries. Very exciting time. So be praying uh, and keeping this in the front uh, of your mind and in your heart. Be talking to God about how he might use you. So today we're in Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him and healed him there. Now, the records of Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on uh, the Galilean ministry of Jesus and only emphasize his presence in Jerusalem right before his crucifixion and yet resurrection, yet it would be a mistake to believe that this trip to Galilee to the region of Judea was unusual for Jesus. The Gospel of John tell us on a lot of different visits that he, that he made to Judea and Jerusalem. Now Matthew points this out so that his readers understand the popularity and the power of Jesus was not restricted to just Galilee. Later on in Acts, we would see how this would affect the early disciples. Now in verse 3, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now the Pharisees attempt to trap Jesus. Now this continues the theme of the conflict and controversy that Jesus has with the religious leaders. Now earlier in Matthew, they had questioned Jesus as he did work in Galilee. Now Jesus is in Judea and he's questioned by them. And their questions were not honest. They asked him, testing him. They were hoping to, to trap him. Uh, now divorce was a controversial topic in Jesus' day with the two main schools of thought centered around two of their most famous rabbis. Now the first was the school of Rabbi Shema, a more strict and unpopular view. And the second was the school of Rabbi Hillel, which was a more lax and popular view. Now among the Jews of that day, marriage was a sacred duty if a man was unmarried after the age of 20, uh, except to concentrate you know, on the study of the law, he was guilty of breaking God's command to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, according to William Barclay, they said that by not having children, he was killing his own descendants. So they took procreating very seriously and they had lessened the glory of God on the earth. Now, in theory, the Jews of that day had a high ideal of marriage, yet they had a low view of women. <laughs> The Jews had a very low view of women. Now look at this interesting. How can you have a high view of marriage and a low view of men? Well, we're going to talk about that. Now today, a lot of people also have a low view of women. Tragically, women also sometimes have a low view of women and often reject the idea that women should be different than men in any way, shape, and form. Now, the low view, their low view of women meant that their high ideal of marriage was constantly compromised. And those compromises were made into law as with the thinking of Rabbi Hillel. Now under, the, now under his thinking, a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner or if she had unbound hair 
or spoke to a man in the streets or if she spoke disrespectfully of his parents in his presence or if she was a brawling woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. Another rabbi went even further saying that a man could divorce his wife if he found a woman that he liked better and considered more beautiful. Wow, terrible. So for just any reason, now they had essentially created no-fault divorce. These words were the center of the debate. Each school of thought understood the Mosaic law gave permission for divorce. When a man takes his wife and marries her and it happens that he, he finds no favor in his eyes because she had some uncleanness in her. Now he writes a, a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Now each side knew and believed that the question was, what constitutes uncleanness or what are the reasons that someone could be divorced now rabbi shammai understood that uncleanness meant sexual immorality and said that this was the only valid reason for divorce now halal understood uncleanness to mean any sort of indiscretion even to the point for where some rabbis uh this to be burning someone's breakfast so they had very conservative views of marriage and very liberal views of marriage one had to do with a lifelong commitment one had to do with being married and getting divorced basically for whatever reason you want. It's very much like it is in California today where I'm, where I'm teaching with the ocean behind me here. Now, a lot of, some people thought that a bad wife was like leprosy to her husband and the only way that he could be cured was by divorce. Terrible view. They even said that if man had a, had a bad wife, it would be his religious duty to divorce her. So we can see kind of the two schools of thought that have to do with marriage. So in their question, the Pharisees tried to get Jesus to side with one teaching or with the other. If he was agreed to the conservative view of marriage, they would have trapped him. If they had agreed with the liberal view of marriage, he would have been trapped as well. They were trying to get him sort of torn so that one side of the crowd would not like him. Now, the religious leaders had reason to believe that they had caught Jesus uh, in a dilemma here but they didn't. Look at verses four and six. He answered them and said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer uh, two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now what's happening here? Jesus's first answer to the Pharisees was, get back to marriage. Now, the Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce and opinions, but Jesus wanted to get back to the scriptures and to marriage. Jesus began with the first marriage, the one between Adam and Eve. Now, this emphasis on the scriptures and marriage rather than divorce is a wise approach for anyone interested in keeping a marriage together. Adam Clark said, by answering the question not from Shammai or from Hillel, but from Moses, Jesus defeated their malice and confounded their argument. He turned it around on them. William Barclay also noted that in the case of Adam and Eve, divorce was not only inadvisable, it was not only wrong, it was impossible because there, was no, there were no other options. It was just Adam and Eve and God. It turns out that's the recipe for a lifelong marriage. You and your spouse and God and a focus on that. So Jesus was trying to teach this to them. Now, 
He who made them at beginning made them male and female. Now, in quoting Genesis 1.27, Jesus indicated first that God had made men and women different and that God joins men and women together in marriage. Now, in this, Jesus asserts God's authority over marriage. It's God's institution, not man's. So it's fair to say that his rules apply. By bringing the issue back to the scriptural foundation of marriage, Jesus makes it plain that couples must forsake their singleness. A man shall leave his father and his mother and come together in a one flesh relationship that is both a fact as they are a one flesh and a goal to become one flesh. Now, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Now, back to creation in Adam's statement in Genesis 2.23, we see that men and women as husband and wife are different, yet they are joined together as one, completing one another as one flesh. So Adam said this at the creation of Eve. It was as if Adam said, you are different than me, but you were made for me and from me. We are not the same, but we're one. Now in Genesis, Adam tells us that men and women are different from creation, much different. They had different sources of creation. They had different methods of creation. They had different times of creation. They had different names at creation. They had, now despite these fundamental differences between the natures of men and women, God calls a husband and wife to come together as one, as one flesh. This process of things not alike coming together is part of God's great work in marriage, the work of sanctifying and the work of providing a good parental team. The idea that they shall become one flesh includes not just a sexual union, but also goes far beyond it. As marriage is given, not that two people should do one thing together having sex, but that they should do all things together. True oneness. Now the reference is primarily to be fit to physical fleshly unity, but flesh in the Hebrew thought represents the entire man, and that the ideal of unity in marriage covers the entire marriage. It's a unity of soul, as well of body, sympathy, interest, and purpose. The two shall become one also prohibits polygamy and shows that this was God's intention from the beginning, though polygamy was allowed at the New Testament. It was never God's best, and God should have known, they should have known this from looking at Genesis 2.24. Now, what God has joined together, Jesus' command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away. He said to them, Moses, because of your hardness of hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her is divorced, commits adultery. What is Jesus saying? Well, there was a Mosaic controversy, and this is Jesus' second answer. The Pharisees wrongly thought that God commanded divorce where there was uncleanness. One rabbi said if a man has a bad wife, it's his religious duty to divorce her, but Jesus noted the difference between command and permit it. God never commands divorce, but he does permit it. Now the Pharisees thought that Moses was creating or promoting divorce. In fact, he was controlling it. Divorce is never commanded, but permitted by God in certain circumstances, and God permits it because of the hardness of human hearts. Sometimes the heart of the offending party is hard, and they will not do what must be done to reconcile the relationship. Sometimes the heart of the offended party is hard, and they refuse to reconcile and get past the offense, even when there's 
you know, contrition or repentance or remorse, and often the hardness of heart is on both sides, which leads to a fracturing of the relationship. Now, but divorce is never to be thought of as God-ordained or morally neutral, but as an evidence of a hard heart. Now, Jesus interrupted, interpreted the meaning of the word uncleanness in the law, showing that it refers to sexual immorality, not just anything that might displease the husband. For divorce and the freedom to remarry without sin is only permitted in the case of sexual immorality in marriage. Now, what is this? Well, this is the word pornea. Now, it's a broad word covering a wide span of sexual impropriety. One may be guilty of pornea without actually consummating an act of adultery. Pornea covers the entire range of sexual sins and should not be restricted unless the context requires it. Now, to, to this permission for divorce, the Apostle Paul also added the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Now, note that incompatibility, not loving each other anymore, or brutality, or misery are not grounds for divorce, though they may be proper grounds for separation. Or, and having celibacy in marriage, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. These words of Paul show us that a Christian couple can split up for reasons they do not justify a biblical divorce, and it may be because of a misguided sense of spirituality, it may be because of general unhappiness or conflict or abuse or misery or addiction or poverty. Paul recognizes without at all encouraging that one might depart in such circumstance, but they cannot consider themselves divorced with the right to remarry because their marriage had not split up for reasons that justified a biblical divorce. These problems that are serious yet fall short of the biblical for permission for divorce may justify a separation, but the partners are expected to honor their marriage vows even when they're separated, because as far as God is concerned, they're still married. Now, their marriage covenant has not been broken for what God considers to be biblical reasons. So there's kind of a thorough background of it. Now, the reason why a person who does not have a legitimate divorce commits adultery upon remarrying is because they're not divorced in the eyes of God since their old marriage was never dissolved on biblical grounds to begin with. That marriage is still valid and they are guilty of adultery. Now one must admit that this is a hard teaching from Jesus. There are many reasons people give today to justify divorce that do not fulfill the two biblical allowances for divorce. There are also many situations where a marriage is separated or divorced for reasons that do not fulfill the biblical allowance for divorce, but later on, one of the spouses goes on to give biblical allowance, often by marriage or sexual relations with another. We also remember that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. In the context, one of Paul's ideas with this statement was a warning about trying to undo the past in regards to relationships. God tells us, tells us to repent of whatever sin there is and then to move on. Now, if you're married to your second wife after you've wrongfully divorced your first and become a Christian, don't think that you must now leave your, your second wife to go back to the first one. You see the, Paul's point. Now, as the Lord has called you, walk in that place right now. That means we repent wherever we are and we move forward wherever we are. Now look at verse 10. It says, His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs 
who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. The disciples ask about marriage and celibacy. The disciples understood Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce clearly. They understood that it was not a commitment to be entered into quickly or lightly and considered that since marriage is so binding before God, then maybe it is better not to marry. Jesus recognized celibacy is good for some for the one who is able to accept it, such as Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, the term eunuch was used figuratively for those who voluntarily abstain from marriage. Jesus here gave three kinds of eunuchs, or three examples. Now, verse 13, then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked him. And Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. What's going on here? Well, Jesus blesses little children in a few different ways. It is marvelous that in the midst of Jesus' teaching on marriage, parents brought their children to be blessed. Now today, parents are, should still bring children to Jesus. He wants to bless them and welcome them into the kingdom of heaven. This also shows us something remarkable about Jesus' character. He was the kind of man that children liked, and children are astute judges of character, aren't they? They sort of know who the good people are and who the bad people are. Now, the laying on of hands is used biblically as a way to show blessing on another. We see this in Acts and in 1 Timothy. Now, look at verse 16. Now, behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good, uh, that is, uh, but God. But if you want to enter in a life, keep the commandments. Now, this question demonstrates that, uh, that this man, like all people by nature, had an orientation towards earning eternal life. He wanted to know what good work or noble deed that he would have to do to inherit eternal life. Now, all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that this man was rich. Matthew tells us he was young, and Luke tells us that he was a ruler. So this guy had a lot going for him. It was, as if, it was as if Jesus said, you come to me asking about what good thing that you should do to inherit eternal life, but what, you, what do you really know about goodness? And here's the thing that you need to do. Jesus' answer to the man's question was straightforward, just like it is to us. If you want to gain eternal life, by your doing, you must keep all of the commandments, every single one of them. Now look at verse 18. He said to him, which ones, Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus asked the man, about the commandments, which primarily deal with a man's relationship to man. In response, the young man claimed, well, all these things I've kept from my youth, thus claiming to fulfill all of God's commands regarding how we must treat other people. Well, it is fair to ask if this man had really kept those commandments. Sometimes we think of ourselves as better than we really are. It's likely that he actually did keep them in some way, but not in a perfect way, in the sense that Paul could say, you know, concerning his righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Paul wasn't actually blameless, but he almost was as far as keeping the law. But he certainly 
did keep them in the full and perfect sense that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. So what is happening here? Well, he says, what do I still lack? This alone tells us that this man had not perfectly kept the law, just like none of us are perfect. Because he still knew that there was something that was missing in his life, prompting him to ask the question, what do I still lack? There was something still lacking in his life, reflecting on something missing in his relationship with God, like many of us. And we look at verse 21 now. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Now, the call to forsake everything and follow Jesus is the call to put God first in all things. It's full obedience to what Jesus is calling us to do. Now, we may, uh, sometimes we make two mistakes here. The one is to believe that this applies to everyone uh, when Jesus never made this a general command to all who follow him, but especially to this one rich man whose riches were clearly an obstacle to his discipleship. This is what Jesus is speaking to, this man's obstacle. Many rich people can do more good in the world by contributing to make money and using those resources to the glory of God and the good of others. Well, the second mistake we make here is to believe that this principle applies to no one. Yet there are clearly those today for whom the best thing that they could do to help them grow spiritually would be to forsake all materialism that's ruining their life. So we notice that Jesus simply called this man to be his disciple and saying, follow me. He used similar language in calling many of his disciples and earlier in Matthew. Jesus simply called this man to be his follower, but for this man, it meant leaving behind the riches that had him. You see, this man had, didn't have wealth. His wealth had him. Now in this, the wealthy questioner failed. Money was his God. He was guilty of idolatry. This is why Jesus, knowing his heart, asked him to renounce his possessions. Now the principle remains, God may challenge and require an individual to give something up for the sake of his kingdom that he still allows to someone else. There are many who perish because they will not forsake what God tells them to. Now look at verse 23, then Jesus said to his disciples, assuredly I tell you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So you see, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, well, with men, this is impossible, you know, but with God, all things are possible. Isn't that comforting? You see, riches are a problem because they tend to make us satisfied with this life instead of longing for heaven. As well, sometimes riches are sought at the expense of seeking God. You see, the illustration that Jesus used, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, was meant to be somewhat humorous. We immediately think of this as being impossible. Of course, you have this giant animal, uh, the camel, the largest animal that they would have reference to, trying to squeeze through the smallest imaginable hole. The problem with riches is that they encourage a spirit of false independence. The great amazement of the disciples was based on the assumption that riches were always a sign of God's blessing and favor. Sometimes we make that mistake. Sometimes today we think that that's true. But are riches really a sign of God's blessing? Well, maybe. Maybe not. 
They had probably hoped that their following of Jesus would make them rich or influential or prominent, just like people do today. They think if they follow Jesus, they're going to be rich and influential and prominent. And just like Jesus said to this man, not so fast. That is not what I'm saying. Jesus is not saying that all, that all poor people and none of the wealthy enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that would exclude people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon and Joseph of Arimathea who had great wealth. There are also many poor people in the Bible. But in saying it's hard because people tend to trust their money more than God. Now, verse 27, Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Jesus said to them, Surely, I say to you, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne in his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or wife or children for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So Peter's blunt question, what do we get for following you? In contrast to the rich young ruler, the disciples would leave all to follow Jesus. So what would be the reward? Well, Jesus tells of the special honor for the disciples. You who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, the disciples will have a special role in the future judgment, probably in the sense of the administration of the millennial kingdom. You see, there will be universal honor for all who sacrifice for Jesus' sake. Whatever has been given up for him will be returned to us a hundred times over in the addition to everlasting life. Jesus will do more than make up for what we have given up for his sake, but the return may be spiritual instead of material. Hundredfold certainly is literally true in the spiritual sense. So, in the previous words, Jesus promised that those who sacrifice for his sake and the sake of his kingdom would be rewarded. Then he said that though they would be rewarded, it would be different than man usually expects because we usually believe that the first will be uh, will be first and the last will be last. That's not, Jesus says the opposite. Now, this concludes our time looking in Matthew 19 today. Now, I want you to think about what God was saying to you today. Was he talking to you about marriage? Was he talking to you about divorce? Was he talking to you about wealth and following him? Now, some of us need to hit reset in our lives sometimes. Some of us need a fresh start. There's sometimes we need to stop things. Other times we need to start things. Chance is a, prayer is a chance to recenter and to recalibrate and reset our life and to say, like I want you to with me right now, say, God, help me to change my life, to hit reset, to recalibrate, to line up with you, to stop those things I need to stop, to start those things I need to start. Jesus, would you give me the help in your name? Amen. Now, to end up our time here together today, the Bible teaches us that giving is part of our worship. This has been practiced for thousands of years in the local church. The Bible teaches the concept of setting aside 10% of our income to give to the local church so the local church can be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. So that's what we teach here. Now, we've planted already four churches here at Ocean Water. We're helping a lot of people. Some of them are drinking the ocean. We're going to do that in this year in Indonesia and Bangladesh. Please help us do that as you give as part of your worship today. And I pray that God uh, will bless you as you do.
and have a beautiful day. If you want to do that, you can go to oceanwater.com and you can give there. We'd love for you to be a part. And uh, as always, have a beautiful day.